The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you want to turn your Bibles again to the book of Acts, we'll be in Acts chapter 12 in just a few moments here. As you know, if you've been here for a while, we've been going through a series in the life of the Apostle Peter, preparing for the day when we will finally get to 1 Peter. I think I have some good news for you. First Peter is just around the corner. All right, we're gonna, I think we're going to start First Peter next Sunday evening. So I've, been, I've really enjoyed, though, going through Peter's life. And, and really what's happened for me, at least, is I've got a really good perspective on how God discipled Peter, how he taught Peter. More than anything else, I've just seen God working with an immature believer to, to bring him to a place where he truly has the faith he ought to have. He's truly unashamed of the gospel. And that is, the, that is Peter's life to a T. He's a guy who has many failings and many, many faults, like all of us do. He's a guy who has a lack of talent in some areas. He, he is not this incredible superhuman person. He's a man who was under the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that, became the man who God ended up using in a mighty way to start the church. So Peter's life is a fun life to go through. This morning we'll be dealing with a subject that I believe most of us struggle with from time to time. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read just a few verses here to begin. And I want to get your gut reaction as you read these verses. And just so you know, a gut reaction is not your well-reasoned, biblically-founded answer. All right? Now, some of you have that, and that's a wonderful thing, and, and praise the Lord for that. But I want to get your reaction when you first hear these verses. What do you do inside? Um, for me, I, I think it's kind of neat to see how children respond to things. Okay? Now, often my children don't respond the right way. Um, but what's neat about it is that they, do, they haven't practiced, right? They don't have this facade. They can't pretend to have emotions that they don't have. And many of us eventually become good at that kind of thing. And it's unfortunate. I, I think that it's nice to just be with kids and, and have their gut reaction on just about everything you say. So that's what I, I'm looking for. I want to see the little boy and the little girl in you with no facade, no attempt to cover up what you feel. Be honest. Verse number one, Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I can tell you, the little boy in me says, if you're my enemy, I'm going to destroy you. If you curse me, you better be ready to say it to my face. If you hate me, you're a moron. <laughs> How could you possibly hate me? <laughs> and nobody likes you anyway. If you use me or persecute me, I will find a way to have vengeance times ten. That is my initial reaction when I hear those things. It's like, God, that's hard. I mean, really love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me and, and use me? And, and I mean, how do you do this kind of thing? Now, you might think our pastor's allowed to feel this way. Um, I'm just the assistant, so... The truth is, I think we all understand this. We all have flesh. We all have that little boy inside of us that, that is selfish and proud and doesn't like the idea of us responding in a way 
to people who are unkind to us in a way that is loving and kind. But that is what our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to do. So hopefully that is not where I land. I know I have seen some growth in this area, and I know I have a lot of growth to do. But I just want to get for you, what is your gut reaction? Probably very similar to mine. How about 1 John 3.13? Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. What do you mean they're going to hate me? They're going to love me. Don't be surprised. In fact, I think sometimes it's a problem when we are attempting to have everybody love us. Because sometimes the truth isn't nice to hear. And darkness will hate light. What 2 Timothy 3.12? Yea, and all of you that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. My little boy says, I don't want to. Really, I mean, I... We're going to live, we're going to suffer persecution. No, God, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to do that. How about 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13? So we get to the point where we say, okay, godly in Christ Jesus, okay, fine. Fine, if I have to do it, I'll do it. At least this life is short. And then 1 Peter 4, 13 says, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So not only do I have to be ready and willing to go through suffering, I have to rejoice in it. I mean, and really, because it makes me a partaker of Christ's sufferings. Do it and do it with a good attitude. I'm trying to get this for my kids all the time. You need to obey, but you need to to be joyful in your obedience. It's a very hard lesson to teach children. It's a very hard lesson to teach adults, too. We need to, to obey our Lord, be willing to go through suffering, and then find a way to rejoice in it, because we know... That God is in control. And we know that these things do work for good. Them that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we need to rejoice in our suffering. And all of this brings us to our text this morning. I would love to stand up here and give you all good news about how your life is going to play out. I actually, sometimes when I think of, of prosperity gospel teachers, the teachers who stand up and say, if you follow Jesus, then all your wildest dreams will come true. I think... Man, that wouldn't be a bad gig, you know? I mean, if you could honestly stand up there and tell people that they're going to be healthy and all they need to do is have a little faith or, or they're going to have a better job than they currently have, I feel like what would happen is all of you would, would, would like to hear that. I mean, it is a nice thing to hear, right? And all of you would like the person that's giving that message. And so I think, I mean, in some ways it, it would be a good gig. Okay? Hey, everybody, guess what? When you go home, there's a new car in your garage. It's good news, right? Well, here's the problem. (laughs) It's not biblical, number one, and it's not true. That's probably why it's not biblical. When we look to the Word of God, and maybe some of you think, man, they preach on suffering a lot. Do you know why we preach on suffering a lot? Because we do do this thing called expositional preaching, where we take take just a book and go through it one at a time, one verse at a time. And suffering comes up a lot because God's people suffer, because life is suffering. We live in a sin-cursed world. If this world was perfect, do you know what it would be? It'd be heaven. If there was no suffering and no tears and no crying and no sadness and everybody loved each other all the time and there there was this joy in pleasing God, that's heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. But this life is sin cursed. And so we should expect suffering. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. 
And our protagonist in this story is not actually going to be Peter. It's going to be James. James the Apostle. And I think it would serve us well to have a little bit of understanding of who James is. So if you remember from the Gospels, James is the son of Zebedee and Salome. And he is the brother of the Apostle John. So he is one of the first apostles that are called by Jesus. And he's a fisherman by trade. And so Jesus calls him to apostle. And not only is he apostle, one of the twelve called out ones, he is a member of the inner circle. So he is one that, that had this privilege of being at events like the transfiguration of Christ. He was there all the time. right? The, the inner part of the, of the twelve. So he's a person that appears very often in the Gospels. We could even go through the, the life story of James and get to know him a little bit. Try to understand what he was going through. Jesus called him and his brother John the sons of thunder. And I think it's because of their tendency to display thunderous anger. So he's a man of passion, of intimate knowledge and love for Jesus, and a willingness and a desire to serve the Lord in any way he can. So here we have this church that's being started, and already it seems crazy that God calls 12 people to to basically start this church and to lead this church. And he's one of the 12, and now the church has been going for maybe 10 or 12 years, and we come to this story in Acts chapter 12. Here we'll find the unthinkable happens. Verse number one, now about that time, King Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. In two very short verses, Luke kills off one of the most important men in church history to this point. Did you get that? I mean, I mean, so far, we've seen Stephen die in Acts 7, but, 7 and 8, but it almost seems as though Stephen's death was like we were introduced to Stephen, and then very quickly we heard his sermon and we, we saw him die. And so he's the first martyr, and we're sad to see him go, but we don't really know him well, right? As far as the apostles are concerned, so far what's happened is every time they get brought into jail, they might get beaten, they might get talked to, they might get in trouble, but they don't get killed. God somehow miraculously frees them. And so this is just almost a shock. Like we, we get through the first 11 chapters and yes, they go through trouble, but, but they, they persevere every time. There's no death for them. And now Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, James, the brother of John, is killed with a sword. Understand that James had a family. Understand that he had gifts and ministries that he was a part of that he loved people, that there were people that he was discipling, that there were people that loved him. Do you understand that he probably had some of his future plan? James was not warned by God immediately before this would happen. And even when we read the account, it's, it almost seems like Luke is just going over this very briefly because he, it's, it's a sore spot for him. It's such a contrast to the stories we've heard before. Such a, it's such a, a difference of what we expect to happen. And all of a sudden, we find James, the apostle, is dead. He's dead at the hand of King Herod. King Herod is the man who was ruling over all of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and the Transjordan at the time. Uh, he's basically the, the king over all of the areas that Jesus ever visits. He was a very, very important man. 
and he is no less evil than his grandfather who had the babies killed at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Very evil family, very evil man. And he kills James simply because he is trying to gain popularity among the Jews. If, he can, if the Jews like him, then they won't rebel against him. And so he kills James just to be popular. It says he was killed with a sword. If, this was, if, it, if he killed him the Roman way, it would be beheading. If he killed him the Jewish way, he would be stabbed through the body. Not a nice death either way. So now James is dead, verse number three. And because he saw it please the Jews, he, Herod, proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. So it's, it's the Passover time. And when they had apprehended him, he put him into prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So Herod has this great idea. Everybody loved to see James die so much that, it, that he goes out and he arrests Peter. And he keeps Peter hostage for a while. He keeps Peter in prison. He says, Jews, you can be excited after this Passover feast is over. You're going to get another fun day of death. We're going to kill Peter for you all too. He's finding ways to become more and more popular among the Jews. And so now Peter has just seen James killed with a sword. He knows this is real now. And now he's arrested and put into prison. You can imagine what's going through Peter's mind. The loss of his friend, the fear of what's going to happen, the confusion about why this is happening, and why didn't he just get miraculously released like before. Verse number 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church to God for him. Luke makes a point that here, prayer is made. The point is, Prayer does change things. Prayer is important. Verse number six. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two of the soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. So now here, Peter's in the prison. Right? We've already heard that there's four quaternions of soldiers that are, that are guarding him, which means there are 16 men total. Now likely they had four different shifts. So there's at least four men specifically guarding Peter at this time. Now my guess is, Herod was taking all these precautions because he knows the stories of how all the disciples were led out of prison before. So he says, you know what, I'm not taking any chances. Here's two guys, one on his right, one on his left, and two guys standing in front of the door. And this is just his own prison. After you get past that, that, those guards, you have to go through the main prison guards. And so these guys are right beside him. He's got two chains binding him. So both of his hands are bound with a chain. I mean, he is in trouble. And here's a man who knows the very next morning he's going to be killed. Okay? This is his last moments to live, as far as he's concerned. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Can you imagine that? I mean, the night before you know that you're going to be killed with the sword, all this is coming, and you're just asleep? I wonder if this had something to do with the faith of Peter. He got to the point where he said, Lord, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I know you're in control. I, I trust you. And so he's able to fall asleep, even in the midst of this, this kind of trial. 
And then I love here how the angel deals with Peter. First it says he smacks him on the side. So he, he, he smote him on the side. He picked him up. He says, get up, Peter. So, so Peter's hands, his chains fall off. And then he basically says, okay, make sure you, you, do, up your, you know, do up your belt. Get, get ready to run. Okay, good, Peter. You got that done. Okay, okay. now I want you to put your coat on. Okay, put your coat on. Okay, you're good. Okay, okay, Peter, follow me. You don't even have to think, just walk behind me the whole way. It's, it's so funny. Like, Peter's woken up out of sleep, and he's treated like a child. And the point is, this is not Peter's escape. This is Peter really doing his best to follow very clear, simple directions while he is released, delivered from prison by the angel. Verse number 9, And he went out, and he followed him. And wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but he thought he saw a vision. So here's Peter, and he thinks he's just dreaming. I mean, he's, he's awake, and he's walking out of the prison, and he sees the guards, and maybe they're, they're in this deep sleep that God's put them in, and so he's, he's free, and he thinks this is all a vision. Verse 10, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth, leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. So here God waits until the, the night of the execution, hours before it happens, and we know that prayer is being made, and God arrives on time. And I, I can imagine that the people prayed for days, longing for Peter to be, to, to be released, and they felt like for many days that their prayers were not answered. And then God, at the last moment, delivers Peter. And now we get to a part of the story that I think is kind of a, a funny part. Um, Everyone here has been in Mary's house, Mary, the mother of John Mark, and they've been praying incessantly for Peter, praying that he would be delivered. And so now we have Peter free, and he goes to this house where he knows everybody's going to be gathered, and he goes to the outer gate, and he starts knocking on the gate. Okay, now, you've got to understand, he is a fugitive from justice, right? I mean, he's, he's just escaped to prison, and he's, um, if they find him, he's in trouble. So he's outside this gate, probably trying to get inside as, as quickly as he can. And the way that houses were built back then is they had this big courtyard that you'd have to walk through in order to get to the outer gate. So you had kind of an a, a open area for everybody, and then you could go into your rooms from that courtyard. And so we have all of these people, all the disciples and the apostles, in the upper room praying for release. And this girl named Rhoda, her name actually means Rose, so Rose heads out, and she hears the knocking, and like she would normally do, walks to the, the gate, and she says, okay, who is it? And Peter says, it's Peter. And Rhoda just gets so excited. I mean, she can't believe that Peter has escaped. So what she does is she runs back through the car, courtyard, runs upstairs where everybody's meeting, and tells everybody, hey, everybody, guess what? Peter's free. I mean, he's, he's outside. He's free. And you know what everybody says? No, he's not. There's no way he's free. He was, I mean, there was four soldiers surrounding him all the time. He is not free, Rhoda. And Rhoda says, yeah, no, he is, honestly. I, I heard him. He's just out there right now. They say, no, he's not. 
I know he's not free. In fact, maybe you heard his angel. <laughs> Which is, I mean, isn't that more ludicrous? Maybe that Peter's angel is outside. Now, back then, uh, the Jews believed that every person had their own guardian angel. And so when they said that you've seen his angel, what they were basically saying is maybe you've seen his, his ghost. I mean, you've seen the angel that goes with him all the time, and now that Peter is dead, his angel is here. And so maybe what you heard is Peter's angel now that his angel is no longer with him. Okay? And that seems more plausible to them than Peter being there. And do you know what's happening the entire time that they're having this argument? Guys, I'm still out here. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, come and answer the door. And so finally they all hear him mocking. They all, they all run out and they run downstairs and they, they open and they're just shocked to see that Peter is safe and that he's alive. And they rejoice that even though their prayer was lacking a little bit of faith, it seems, that God answered their prayer and he delivered Peter. And so that, this is the, re, the rejoicing part of the story. And now what I want to do is I want to get to the end of Herod's story. In verse number 20, it says, Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. So Herod, Herod is upset that, that Peter's out. He's upset that they can't find him. And so what he does is he finds, he, he, he has this problem with Tyre and Sidon, and he is asked to go there. Halfway through verse number 12, but they came, 20, but they came with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. So what he's saying is, that he, Herod has a, a chamberlain, who's a, a trustworthy servant, who's become friends with the leading men of Tyre and Sidon. And so they convince Blastus to get, to get Herod to come and to visit them, because they believe if they can get Herod back on their side, so Herod must have some kind of problem with Tyre and Sidon, because he's not feeding them like he should, he's not taking care of them like he should, as a good king would. And so they believe that maybe if they can have a conversation with him, they can fix this problem and get everything running for their, their cities well again. And so they throw this big party in Herod's honor. Verse number 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of God and not of a man. Now, Josephus was a historian during this time. He's a Jewish historian, a wonderful historian. And he recorded this event in great detail. He recorded this, this party being thrown. That he recorded uh, as Herod stood up before them, he was wearing a garment that was completely made of silver. And so it, as he stood in the morning sun, it, it seemed as though it was just he was glistening. He was radiant with the sun sparkling off of him. And so he stands up in front of all these people, all these people who don't actually like him, but they need him. And so as he does, and as he speaks, all the people shout out, saying, it is the voice of God and not of a man. And Josephus records that Herod did not agree with what they said, but he didn't disagree. He didn't correct them. He, he, he accepted the worship that belongs only to God. Verse number 23, and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up. The ghost. Herod pays the price. He pays the price for his pride. He pays the price for his arrogance. And I think as we, as we read the story, just as it's written, it seems as though 
Luke is connecting the death of Herod with the death of James. So he pays the price here for killing James. But verse number 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. Even Herod, the king, who was that powerful, could not do anything to thwart what God was doing in the world. I promised at the beginning of this sermon we were going to speak a little bit about suffering. I want to answer some of the tough questions. And why I believe that this story is very helpful for us is that, number one, we see the hand of God all over it, and James still dies, right? I mean, don't we see God working in miraculous ways? We know God is in control based on the story, and yet we still see that James dies. And we know that God has the power to change our circumstances, but he chooses not to. Second thing is because James did not plan to die and the disciples did not want it to happen. And so here was an event where what they didn't want to happen, what they didn't plan for to happen, happened. And what happens when it comes to suffering is rarely, if ever, I don't think it's ever, rarely, it's never a part of our plans, right? Number three, because it seems to affect the faith of the praying disciples to a degree. The disciples have been praying a lot. I mean, they've been praying for boldness. They've been meeting in this upper room constantly. But now, when they pray, it seems as though they don't really expect God to answer it. And so here we have an instance where when suffering occurs, when death happens, the disciples pray, but they don't pray with the same kind of faith that they might have prayed with before. And I think a lot of times we go through suffering, and sometimes it affects our faith. It affects you know, how we're walking with God and, and, and the trust that we're putting in him. Number four, we find that in this story, because we still don't know why James's death was necessary. The story is helpful because there are a lot of times we go through suffering and we don't know why it's necessary. And, and I know a lot of times you say, okay, I went through this, this circumstance and it was difficult, but at the end of the day, I saw what God was doing. Right? You've been there before. You've looked back on your life and you said, I see what God was doing in this difficulty. But there are some difficulties that you get through and you can't say you see what God was doing. I mean, not at this point, not in this life. You look back and you say, that was hard and I still don't understand. And I think with James, I mean, it makes sense to want to have James as a part of the church. And there was no massive revival that happened right after his death. I mean, it wasn't, it just didn't seem to serve a purpose. And yet the suffering happened, and God allowed it. Number five, the story is helpful because we are given a clue on how we should respond. They respond with prayer. And they don't respond with maybe the same kind of prayer, but they, they, they do the best that they can to do what they ought to be doing, and that is to pray. The sermon this morning is titled, All Things for Good, But What About James? And it comes from the verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to to them who are called according to his purpose. And it is a favorite verse of many believers because what it says is that we can go through our circumstances, we can go through our life and know that God is working difficult things for good. But what about James? I I think a lot of times we say that and what we mean is that at the end of the day, this suffering in this life is going to be proved to be good. It's going to be better us. You know, it's like, yes, I lost my job now, but I'm going to get a better job. 
okay, maybe, I, maybe I'm sick now, but I'm going to get better very quickly, and it's all going to work out, right? When we say that all things work together for good, what we learn in this text is James must be, that must be true for James as well, because it seems like he loves him and is called according to his purpose. And yet James, he dies. His family loses someone. And so this, how is this statement true when it seems like from at least an earthly perspective, we don't see all things working together for good? This is the, this is the thing that, that Christians, if you're honest, we struggle with. Right? We think about, God, how does it, I mean, how does this verse, how does it square with what I know to be true? What's reality? It does. So how should believers react as we face reality of, or future prospect of suffering? How is it possible that this is really for good? And as believers, we encounter suffering because we will, and many of us are at the moment. How is it true that all things work together for good, and how should we respond? And number one, I got two points. So number one, we must be cross-focused. We must focus on the cross. Our example is Jesus Christ. And so as James goes through this suffering, do you know what he can do? He can remember when his Lord and Savior, the King of the universe, went through the same thing. When he saw him hanging on the cross and dying. When he saw the example and was told to expect to carry your cross. Because if you're going to follow him as a disciple, there is a cross. He told all of us to expect suffering, to be prepared for it. He told us to be prepared for persecution. And so we look to the cross, and first of all, we see our example. The second thing we see is that when we look to the cross, we see help. Christ knows what we're going through. I mean, he suffered, right? He suffered more than we ever will. And so when we look to the cross, we see one who has gone before us, who is our example, and who is now with us. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, God never promised us a charter of exemption from trouble, but he promised to be with us in trouble. And so we find help when we look to the cross. We find the one who went and did it for us, and the one who promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We find help, and, and number three, we find hope. We look to the cross and we find hope. Why? Because the suffering, it's not in vain. It's not empty. It's not useless. Now, there is a lot of suffering that it seems empty and useless. But when a believer suffers, and when they try and glorify God as they go through suffering, then it's not in vain. Then it's not useless. It is not wasted. J.I. Packer said, Ease and luxury such as our affluence brings today does not make for maturity. Hardship and struggle, however, do. So what happens in suffering? Well, part of what happens when we go through suffering is we can know that God is working. He's working to make us more like Christ. And the work that is accomplished in the suffering cannot be accomplished otherwise. You get that? What God is doing in your life as you struggle, the faith that, that is built as you lean on him, that faith can't be built when everything is peachy. So suffering has a purpose. And suffering makes us think of what is the most valuable thing. Right? Do you, do you ever realize what, when you lose an item, all of a sudden when you find it, it becomes more valuable to you? You know that when we go through suffering, I think what it does is it makes us think heaven. 
is so much more valuable to me than I previously thought. If life on earth here is just wonderful and it's easy and, and there's never any difficulty, do you know what we tend to do? We tend to want to live here forever, right? We tend to think about here. We become temporal focused, right? This is, this is a temporary. And yet all we do is focus on it because it seems to be pretty good. But we go through suffering. You long for home. You long for the day when the suffering will be no more. And so what was previously less important to you now becomes important. Can you imagine what heaven is going to be like? Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to, to have no more death? I mean, nobody around you dies. There's nobody that is sick. There's nobody that is struggling. There's nobody that is pain. There's nobody that when you ask them how they're doing, how's it going today, that they, they can barely speak because they can't get the words out because they're not doing well. Can you imagine the day when, when all we're doing is, is serving and glorifying God and, and, and the, light, the world is wonderful? It makes us long for heaven. Heaven is so wonderful because we know and have experienced what a sin-cursed world is like. And now to think of a place that is perfect seems so much greater. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And so when we look to the cross, we find our example, we find our help, the one who will go with us through it, and we find our hope that because of the cross, we have this eternal hope. We have heaven to look forward to. And we know that because of the cross and because of the victory that was accomplished there, someday this suffering though it is difficult as we go through it, will be no more. We must remain cross-focused. James saw the example of a Savior. Jesus promised that this would happen to him. And so he goes through the suffering knowing that he's going through only what his Savior did. He's partaking in the afflictions of Christ. And so he can rejoice in it. He knows that, that as he went through the suffering, as he went through this trial, James that Jesus was there with James, that he never forsook him, he never left him. And James knew that paradise was on the other end of the suffering. Uh, Paul has this dilemma in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, and, and sometimes when you read these verses, they just seem fo so foreign to us, but they shouldn't. If you're a believer, these verses should ring true. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh... This is the fruit of my labor. Yet, what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. He's saying, not just a desire to, to like go away for a while. He wants to die. He has this desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. The gospel doesn't give us a reason we're all suffering. It doesn't, doesn't help us understand all of why we're going through what we're going through, but it makes us so that suffering does not have to be in vain, and that suffering does not have to be permanent. And so we must be cross-focused. Number two, we must be eternally minded. Thomas Watson again said, our sufferings may be lasting, but they're not everlasting. They may be lasting, they may be hard, but they're not eternal. Believers should look at this life differently than everyone else, right? I mean, we believe in a resurrection. 
We believe that this life is short and that death is not the end. We believe in eternity. So when we look at sufferings, we should come at them from a completely different perspective. And this is not easy to do, right? Because we're hardwired to just today. Today is all that matters. My pain today, what I'm going through today, that's all that matters. And when you're in the midst of the suffering, it's one of the most difficult things in the world to do, to say, I'm going to step back and try and get God's perspective on this. But can I tell you something? God is outside of time. And he is a loving father who's, who has ordained what you're going through because it is good. Whether you understand why or not, it is good. And so, if you were to, if we were just to gain an eternal perspective, think, okay, 2,000, 20,000, 20 million years from now, when I look back, then how will I view this suffering? Our suffering, it's not eternal. Right? It, it's hard and it's, it's lasting. Sometimes lasting for a while, but it's not everlasting. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Isaiah writes, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That should be the focus of the mind of the believer. Eternal life with him forever. That death is swallowed up in victory. Pastor preached on 1 Corinthians 15, the the chapter on the resurrection of Christ. And the whole point of that chapter is to say, if we're believers, we can rejoice in suffering because we know death is not the end. And we can live this life in a way that that proves that statement to be true for us. You can live this life in a way that says to everybody around you, this life is not all I'm living for. I don't feel the need to to gain everything I can in this life. I don't feel the need to to push my way and and be dishonest and sin. I don't feel the need to, when I go through suffering, to to have self-pity. Because I know that death is not the end. Sickness is awful but it makes us long for the day when we will be perfectly whole. Death of loved ones is difficult, but it makes us long to see them again. Persecution does not feel good. In fact, it's very shameful and painful at times. But it allows us a greater understanding of what Christ went through for us, and it helps us to fix our eyes on him and on eternity. These things are true. Listen, in suffering... As hard as it is, it's not bad. It's for our good. D.A. Horton said, Suffering strips us of our pride, self-sufficiency, complacency, and our oblivion to the things to come. Eternity is more deeply engraved on the rough palms of God's suffering children. You go through suffering, you long for eternity, you think about eternity. If I was to, to say one thing that was lacking in the life of many believers, it would be this. We don't live with an eternal perspective. We know eternity exists, right? And we have this, this belief in what the Bible says about it, but when we actually live out our lives every day, we live as though this is it. That's a shame. Here's the truth of the matter. Christians will suffer. They suffer all around the world, all the time. I mean, there, are pl- there are people that are being tortured 
for their belief, physically. People being martyred, people losing sisters and brothers and children for their faith in Christ. Suffering and persecution is real. And it's very possible that if you're a believer in North America over the next days and weeks and months and generations, that you will suffer a lot more than you are now for your faith. It seems like that is the direction that our nation is headed. Robert Murray McChain said, when a man's eye is closed on Christ and the eternal world, he cannot stand the shock of afflictions. Get that? When our eyes are closed to Christ, when we don't look to him, we don't look to the eternal world, when we close our eyes on those things, we cannot stand the shock of affliction. But if his eyes clearly see Jesus, you may take away houses and lands, his dearest earthly possessions, his loved ones. Still, his chief treasure is untouched. And so the question is, where do we find our chief treasure? What are we, what are we looking to find our joy in? I mean, do you want to find your joy in this life as much as you can? Do you want to live for eternity and, and find your joy there with Christ? Will your suffering be to the glory of God? Will you die like James or will you die like Herod? Instead of avoiding suffering at all costs, we can live lives that are focused on the cross and focused on eternity. And do you know what happens when we do that? We can find joy in suffering because we know we are put there by our Heavenly Father who loves us. Let's be honest. Our gut reaction, we despise the thought of pain. We despise the thought of suffering. But may the children of God move beyond this and go to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to think about how we go through suffering. Let's pray.